You are listening to the Future of Asia podcast by McKinsey & Company. I am Oliver Tonby, your host and chairman of McKinsey Asia. In this series, we feature leaders from across the region to discuss the forces, the opportunities, and the challenges that are shaping the future of Asia. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Future of Asia podcast. My name is Yuito Yamada. I'm a partner from the McKinsey Sustainability Practice based in Tokyo. The following episode is adapted from our recent interactive webinar session on climate risk and response in Asia in a post-pandemic world. I am joined by four distinct panelists. Oliver Tambi, Senior Partner, Chairman of McKinsey in Asia. Dickon Pinner, Senior Partner and Head of the Global Sustainability Practice. Jonathan Wotzel, Senior Partner and Director of the McKinsey Global Institute. And Michaela Krishnan, Senior Fellow of McKinsey Global Institute. Now, I'd like to hand it over to Oliver Tambi, who would open the briefing. Oliver, handing it on to you. So first of all, welcome, everyone. I'm absolutely delighted to, to have several hundred people join this webinar. The background that we are here is that over the last several years, sustainability and climate change has really risen to be a number one priority. Number one priority for society, for customers, for our employees and all companies across all sectors, for CEOs and for investors. This is really a number one priority. We really saw this uh, happen, for example, in Davos earlier this year, where it was the number one discussion topic. I think this comes after we've now seen for years, we see videos and reports from India, from Delhi last year, it's just too hot to work for significant periods of the summer. We see capital cities being flooded. We hear about Jakarta, or Indonesia moving the capital city because it's going to be submerged. We hear about worries regarding the sustainability of fisheries, of our agriculture and lower yields and, and highly variable yields. So this is really, we are seeing evidence that this is really something that we need to do something about now. And I think now everybody sees this. This now becomes sustainability is the imperative of our time. What we have done in, in McKinsey is also now launched this as one of the important chapters in what we call the future of Asia. We are looking at what is the future of Asia across many different dimensions. Sustainability is one of those key topics because Asia Pacific is going to be affected even more than, than most uh, by climate change. What we want to do today is give a little bit of that background, talk about how is Asia-Pacific being affected. We also want to draw, are there any learnings that we have from the ongoing COVID-19 crisis? And I, I think there are some. We have seen the effect of when business, when government, when society works together, we can really move the needle. Can we take some of those learnings and apply that to sustainability as well? And then finally, we're going to start talking about what are the, is the path forward. You know, personally, I think there is a, are many reasons to be optimistic that there are solutions coming. 
but the amount of effort that needs to put behind it needs to be of a different dimension that we've had in the past. So those are some of the topics that we're going to be discussing today. I hope we have a good and engaged webinar. Please keep the questions coming to uh, our esteemed panelists, Dickin and, uh, and Jonathan. With that, thank you very much. And I hand over to uh, Jonathan. Thank you, Oliver. And before going into Jonathan, we'll have two chapters today. One discussing about the importance of climate risk, which indeed Jonathan and Mikhail would lead. Second chapter, lessons from the current pandemic for climate change, as um, Oliver was introducing. We'd like to also make our session interactive as much as possible. So let me start off with a simple poll. We'd like all of you to push the button appearing on the right side of the screen and answer the question, when will phys physical climate risk response be critical for your organization? Let's start the poll. And while we wait for a few seconds here, Jonathan, what are some of the reactions that you've been seeing um, from this report globally? Thank you, uh, Yuito. So first of all, we launched this report in uh, January and uh, before COVID-19 became a global uh, pandemic. And uh, I can say that that, that launch was a top of the agenda moment for a broad range of finance and public sector and corporate uh, decision makers. Of course, you know, in the last five months, what we have to bear in mind is that events have overtaken us to some extent in the sense that other priorities clearly came to the fore. But what we're seeing now is people coming back to this issue of risk in a broader sense, saying we have just had a very big demonstration of risk. Climate risk on top of that makes this world that much more challenging. Uh, and I think that's what the, the feedback we're getting is that, well, we can't lose track of where we are today, but we have to take into account how climate adds to that and what we should do to address all the risks that we face. And I think we'll touch on that uh, in the course of this uh, of this seminar. But I, overall, I think a, an audience response is saying we're glad that we have data now. In a sense, I, I think, as Dickon might say later, that the good news is that we know the bad news, but now we will uh, have to do something about it. Very good. Thank you. Thank you, Jonathan. And the poll results are coming out and People, 66% of the people are saying right now already. So that's um, also encouraging to see. Um, so over to you, um, Jonathan and Mikala. All right. Thank you, uh, Yuito. And we'll start with uh, an overview, and then uh, Mikala will take us to some of the more Asia-specific uh, implications. But at a global level, of course, our work was to essentially, first of all, take the science. So to be very clear, uh, McKinsey is not a climate modeling institution, uh, but that the, uh, the work to develop the understanding of climate hazards was done by our research partners and drawing on a broad range of publicly available uh, uh, sources. But we should call out Woods Hole Research Center for their uh, excellent work in developing uh, global insights on the uh, hazards that are, that are the consequence of uh, climate change. And those hazards, of course, include everything from heat and drought uh, to uh, extreme precipitation and uh, hurricanes and so forth. So building on those hazards, uh, we then uh, looked at how exposed are we 
and, and what is the vulnerability. And so that's the framework in the sense that physical climate risk is the product of the hazard times the exposure times the vulnerability. And because we have to measure this in some context, we said impact or vulnerability on what? Um, it is, uh, we looked at five systems. Uh, we looked at our communities and how ex hazards affect their livability and workability. Uh, we looked at our food systems, uh, how things will grow and agricultural prospects and productivity. We looked at physical assets, infrastructure, and finally natural capital. And so for each of these five systems, what we are trying to understand is what is, again, the level of risk, the hazard times the exposure times the vulnerability. And what we found, as is summarized, is that clearly by 2050, that risk will increase. Uh, part of, the of that risk is driven by the increases in the hazard. A very significant part is driven by exposure, but the real kicker is vulnerability. As we pass thresholds where our systems are no longer able to cope with that, every threshold, every system has a stress level it can take whether it's a building or a bridge or a cornfield. Uh, and once one passes the temperature or the wind speed uh, or the level of uh, precipitation, you have a flood and a catastrophic failure. So that's the kind of analysis we did. And here are the results that uh, as we look at livability and workability, it's uh, the range of, in the range of 700 million to 1.2 billion people who will live in areas by the year 2050 that have a 14% annual probability of having a lethal heat wave. Uh, a lethal heat wave defined as a uh, 32 degree wet bulb temperature, which is a combination of heat and humidity. Uh, there will be four times the increased risk of a greater than 15% global grain yield decline in a given year versus today. I should note there will also be a three time increased risk of a greater than 15% global grain yield oversupply. So we will see so much more volatility in our agricultural systems, big implications for infrastructure there. We will see four times the capital stock versus today that could be damaged from riverine flooding by 2050, reflecting the impacts of extreme precipitation as one way of measuring the risk to physical assets. And finally, 45% of the Earth's land area will experience a biome shift between now and 2050 uh, compared to 1900. Uh, and that, has, uh, that reflects that today, we've already seen a 25% biome shift. By 2050, we'll see a 45% biome shift. That means a dramatic acceleration at the rate at which we're changing the living environment for our flora and fauna. So those are some of the big global impacts that we see we highlight how we then went to try to turn those into real world impact. And for each of these systems, whether it's livability or food systems, uh, we looked at specific cases and we will illustrate those cases. Uh, will India get too hot to work? Uh, what will the Mediterranean be without the Mediterranean climate? Uh, can coastal cities turn the tide on rising flooding risk? So for each of these cases, again, we look at the hazard, for example, flooding, we look at the, the, the exposure, the size of the city, where the city is. We look at the vulnerability. How bad could it get? What would a one in a hundred year uh, storm do to the city? One last point. We did 
the, the philosophy behind this work is to measure the full inherent risk of climate change. It is not to, uh, first of all, give a point of view on what trajectory we are on. It is to say in the full inherent risk of climate change, where it fully materializes, these are, this is what you are exposed to. Uh, as a result, as you can see, there's a note here that we are basing this on RCP 8.5. Uh, and that is a measure of full inherent risk. It is not intended to say this is a projection of our climate change trajectory, but it is to say what is the impact of experiencing that full inherent risk. So I'm just going to highlight one of those cases and then I will turn it over to Mekala. Uh, this is the India example. Um, and again, it's based on uh, RCP 8.5. On the top row, you can see First of all, what is going to happen in terms of working hours lost? Uh, on the bottom, you see the probability of experiencing an annual lethal heat wave. And as you can see on the left-hand side, things are already, there's a, some amount of working hours which are lost, and, but there aren't that, there isn't that much uh, annual lethal heat wave experience. But by the time you get to the right, of course, there's a, it's a different story. And so in India alone, we think that 2.5 to 4.5% of GDP would be at risk by meaning that it is exposed to that lethal heat wave, as in this is outdoor work, it's in agriculture or it's in construction uh, on days where it is too hot to work. So that is the GDP which is at risk and needs to be taken into account in an, any kind of economic development strategy. As far as the communities go, as you can see out of the 1.2 billion that we said, up to half of that, maybe 500 million would come in, would be in India of uh, people who could live in regions with a 14% annual likelihood of a lethal heat wave. So it's, I would say this is a highly technical analysis, but it builds on science. It builds on what we know about natural systems and how they work. Uh, and, it and it drives the realization that we have a very significant amount, uh, amount of both GDP but importantly, lives at stake here. So with that, passing it to you, Mekala, for, for uh, further insight. Great. Thanks, Jonathan. So Jonathan provided an overview of what we have done globally um, and also started to give some examples of the case studies we look at, looked at. But we wanted to now dive a little bit deeper into some of our findings specifically for Asia-Pacific. So if you remember, Jonathan talked a little bit about some of the hazards that we interrogated, hazards being things like a rise in temperature or lethal heat waves, um, extreme precipitation, et cetera. So on the very top, you see on temperature um, that already we've seen increases in temperature relative to pre-industrial climates. That's the, the first column that you see there. Um, but then fast forward to 2030 and then out to 2050, we could see about a two to four degrees Celsius increase on average. Um, in, in many different parts of Asia, and that includes parts of northwestern India, Pakistan, parts of China, as well as Australia. And so what that means is that we could see that two to four degrees Celsius increase on average, but on extreme days in, in specific parts of these regions, we could actually even see temperatures that exceed that. And now as those temperatures start to rise, that triggers a range of other climate effects including, for example, lethal heat waves. So Johnson's talked uh, a little bit about the lethal heat wave analysis we did globally as well as in India. As we look at those lethal heat wave numbers for the Asia-Pacific region, we find, again, a significant portion of um, 
parts of Asia Pacific exposed, such that about 480 to 730 million people could live in a few South Asian countries that experience such lethal heat waves with ever-increasing probability out to 2050. We give two other examples, one for extreme precipitation and one for hurricanes. So what we see again is that with those rising temperatures, we also see increased conditions of rain. So events that used to be one in 50 years, this is a common language that's used to describe the, the severity of an event um, or the frequency, excuse me, of an event. So an event that used to occur with a one in 50 chance, a 2% chance of occurring in the 50s to 80s now is occurring with more and more frequent probability. If you fast forward to 2050, we could see that event happening now with a four times higher likelihood than we saw in the past. And that could expose parts of Japan, parts of central China, parts of India, parts of Indonesia. And we see a similar trend when we look at hurricanes, where the probability of a, 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 an extreme hurricane, a hurricane that used to have a 1% chance of occurring, now occurs with 3x that likelihood. And that exposes entire regions on the eastern part of Asia, all the way from Japan um, down to China. And if you think about the point Jonathan was making, that the this is about the evolution of hazards. But when you think about the risk from that hazard, that risk manifests as a result of exposure to the hazard, as well as vulnerability to the hazard. And many of the geographies that we're highlighting that are going to see increased hazards are the very geographies where we have high levels of exposure. We have factories in these regions. We have people that live in these regions. And these are also regions where we're continuing to build, continuing to grow. And so as we think about managing this risk, remember this is an inherent risk assessment, absent mitigation and absent adaptation, that starts to point to what we can do towards managing this risk. We wanted to share one other example for everyone to, um, to see. And this is looking at flooding in Ho Chi Minh. Now, Ho Chi Minh in Vietnam is a city that already experiences significant flooding today. But what our analysis found is that with climate change under this RCP 8.5 scenario, more and more parts of the city could be exposed to flooding. And you see that on the map here where the areas in orange indicate, fast forward to 2050, what parts of the city would be exposed to flooding. So not only is an increased area of the city exposed to flooding, but when it's exposed to flooding, we also see increased depth of flooding. Between now and 2050, we find about a one and a half to two times increase both in flooded area in the city, as well as in flood depth. And remember, Jonathan talked about this idea of thresholds. When we translate that to economic damages, we find the increase in economic damages could be much more than one and a half to two times. Today, when we look at infrastructure that's damaged in a typical 100-year event in Ho Chi Minh, those numbers are about 300 million. But fast forward to 2050, that could rise to 0.5 to $1 billion of infrastructure that could be damaged. And infrastructure is something that then forms the backbone of the rest of the economy. So you could see knock-on effects on things like GDP and economic activity as a result of that infrastructure getting damaged. And again, there we find this, this increased non-linearity. So while flooding damage might increase 1.5 to two times, we find that the knock-on effects from damaged infrastructure could rise from about 400 million today to anywhere between 1.5 to 8.5 billion dollars by 2050. So this idea of non-linearities and thresholds, vulnerability to hazards, is very important to think about when we think about finding ways to manage this risk. It raises two imperatives for stakeholders to consider. On the one hand, is thinking about the adaptation agenda. Um, if you look on the chart on the left, what this is showing is 
different temperature trajectories that we could be on. We could choose to be on a 1.5C path, a 2C path, um, and then a, a quote-unquote no further action path. But what you see if you look at this chart is that between now and 2030, there's some amount of temperature increase that's essentially guaranteed regardless of which path we're on. We are guaranteed some increase in warming, and with that increase in warming, we're guaranteed some increase in risk. So at a minimum, all stakeholders need to start to understand what is their exposure to the, the, this risk and how might they think about adapting to manage this risk. And then on the right chart, we show um, what that means in terms of a carbon budget. So each of these different temp temperature trajectories um, are associated with different emissions levels of CO2. And what we find here as well is that over the next 10 years, our actions will influence the path that we're on. So the next decade becomes decisive not only to manage the risk that's baked into the system, the risk that we need to adapt to, but also to decarbonize to reduce further buildup of risk. So with that frame in mind, what should companies and investors think about doing? So we've laid out four um, fairly simple steps um, to, to think about, very intuitive steps, I should say, to think about as you look to manage this risk. The first, of course, begins with assessing your exposure to these forms of risk, to these hazards, and analyzing the impact to your business. Um, you know, a lot of times as we've spoken to people about this research, the question that has come back to us is, are you scared? Are you concerned? Um, are you trying to be alarmist? And that is the, by no means our intention. Our goal in doing this form of analysis, this inherent risk assessment, was to say, let's quantify the magnitude of the challenge that we need to solve so we understand what we need to put in place to manage these forms of risk. And that's what companies need to do. They need to start thinking about what is the risk to their core production? What is the risk to their distribution and sourcing? Um, what is their risk upstream, downstream? Um, what is the risk that their customers may see? So if you think end-to-end -end on a corporate value chain, there are a whole range of reasons that companies could experience risk. And the first step is starting to assess and understand what that exposure is. The second is to then think about what are opportunities that may arise from the, these risks. And those are opportunities both in terms of the adaptation agenda as well as the decarbonization and mitigation agenda. And we're seeing a lot of companies, by the way, do both A and B, both start to do risk assessments on their footprint and also think about what are the opportunities that this creates for them. Um, and that leads you to step B. So really thinking about as you look at this entire set of risks, the entire set of opportunities, what do you look to prioritize now? What do you look to prioritize in the future? And how do you systematically incorporate these risk assessments into your processes? For a company that might impact, that might mean impacts on everything from where they choose to locate their production, where they think about um, locating their supplier bases, how they think about capital allocation, where they expect market growth to be. So there are a whole slew of decisions that companies make that now all need to be made with a climate lens, with understanding climate risk. Much in the way that something like supply chain risk or cybersecurity risk has become embedded into how companies work, we believe that climate risk also needs to be a part of that assessment, be a part of corporate decision-making. And then what that leads us to is this point B, really building capabilities to um, manage, to understand, to quantify um, these forms of risk, building both the mindset of risk and resilience, um, a lot of which we are, do, are learning the hard way right now through our pandemic experience. Um, but then also thinking about what are the tools, metrics, capabilities that you need on the back end to help you do these risk assessments and make these prioritization decisions that I've described.
Asia's standing in the world has changed, and it's clear that where the focus once was on how quickly the region would rise, the reality is now all about how Asia will lead. Keep listening to the Future of Asia podcast. Thank you, um, Michael and Jonathan, for your presentation. Just a reminder to everyone, if you um, have any questions, you can go in the Q&A at the right side. But now I'd like to ask the audience again, um, another poll. How well has your organization assessed the exposure to physical climate risk? If everyone can answer on the screen on the right side. While we wait, maybe, Mikala, what are you especially worried about, maybe personally, when it comes to physical climate risk here in Asia-Pacific? Yeah, good question. So I I, I would say that um, for me, a lot of the climate risk discussion so far has focused on the acute events. So things like flooding, storms, hurricanes, and those, of course, are um, large magnitude events can have very significant impacts on lives and livelihoods, um, economic activity. Uh, but I think what I worry about most, maybe because it gets often gets less attention, is the chronic effects, um, and in particular, the chronic heat effects. So we've talked about some of the impacts on India, for example, from rising heat and humidity that could impact people's ability to work outdoors. Um, many of these countries that experience such effects, by the way, are ones that rely significantly on outdoor work, where a significant portion of GDP and incomes and employment depends on outdoor work. Um, so I think us collectively understanding the impact of some of these chronic effects, I think, um, is very important going forward. Um, I would also say while I am worried, I'm also cautiously optimistic, right? So going back to my alarmist point, I think the good news is certainly that we know what the bad news is for Jonathan's quote of Dickon earlier. But I think also that we have the tools now to start to do these forms of risk assessment. This does require new tools in the form of um, understanding geospatial analysis, understanding um, how asset footprints might influence your exposure to risk. So it is a new muscle, but I think we're starting to now have the tools to be able to do these types of assessments. We're starting to build a mindset of risk and resilience. So I feel cautiously optimistic about that. Very good. Thank you, Michaela. And we have the poll results saying not at all 12%, somewhat qualitative assessment, 54% being the majority and done regular assessment being 12%. So we'll come back to this capability point a little later um, as well. But um, thank you, Jonathan and Michaela. Uh, we'd like to move on to the next chapter, chapter two, lessons from the current pandemic for climate change. And we'd like to start off with a poll here um, as well. How has the relative importance of physical climate risk response shifted considering your current um, COVID-19 circumstances? If everyone could answer on the poll there as well. But while we wait, Dickon, as the global sustainability practice leader here in McKinsey, what are some of the conversation reactions you're seeing from, you know, clients during COVID, you know, financial institution, oil and gas, aviation? Well, what do you hear? It's a great question. I wait with interest to see the, the results of this because I think there's a, a, a geographic flavor to the answer to some of these questions. But uh, we, we were quite surprised, actually, with some of the most impacted sectors are taking very much a through cycle view. So you mentioned too, oil and gas aviation been hit hard by this crisis. And yet many of the conversations we're having is the realization that uh, climate change, particularly the carbon intensity of their operations and business is going to remain and increasingly become 
uh, a topic of kind of great re- relevance to consumers, regulators, uh, and investors. So one, we've seen a, a through cycle view. Uh, and then I think investors, I think, are increasingly picking up on this framing that Makler and, and Jonathan mentioned of risk. And the, the, the realization that a, a exogenous physical risk from a pandemic uh, has some similarities to an exogenous physical sh- risk that climate change poses. And factoring that risk equation into uh, investments um, and uh, the book of business is becoming increasingly important. And I'd say thirdly, at a country level, there's probably initial response of we can't afford to do this. And I think there's a bit of a realization of we perhaps we can't afford not to do this. And in fact, some of the actions here could be accelerants out of the current crisis and create long-term resiliency. So it varies by geography, but those are some of the reactions. Thank you, Dick. And an uh, interesting poll result has come up as well, being uh, 28% being decreased, neutral being 23%, and increased being 24%. So very close. And this, as you said, might uh, differ quite a lot by different geographies. But Dickon, over to you for Chapter 2. Of course. So one of the questions we've been asked uh, is, are there, you know, is there anything to learn from the current situation as it as it pertains to uh, climate change and, and physical climate change. And many of the factors here that Jonathan talked about early on that are characteristics of physical risk of climate change, we see as having some similarities to COVID-19. And I'll just pick out a couple of them. The first one is the systemic nature of it. And I think uh, Makler alluded to the knock-on impacts. And it is very clear that the knock-on impact of people getting sick in one geography and the the impact on the global economy as we're all experiencing and that domino effect has a very systemic nature. The second one is actually the physical nonlinear thresholds. Um, So we see it in the demographics. So for example, we know that younger people probably have a two to 3% chance of mortality if they contract the virus. Uh, the older populations may be uh, uh, sort of 10 to 15 percent, and those thresholds are physical thresholds. We also see these thresholds in hospitals in terms of how many people can you take um, and, and what does it take to flatten the curve. That is a function of a physical threshold of a, of a physical system. Um, similarly, we see the regressive nature. Uh, I'm sitting here in uh, California where I think, you know, in, in the U.S., something like 39 million people have been made unemployed in the last nine weeks or so. This is just a stunning rate, and, and it is the most vulnerable who are most exposed. So it is highly regressive. So we are underprepared for a problem that is, is quite visible. I think it's also really important to understand that there are some very significant differences. The time scale. Uh, clearly, we saw COVID-19 kick in in days, weeks months. Um, climate risk is a years, decades, even centuries phenomenon. The manifestation is also interesting. Uh, it is discrete and clear where it came from in terms of root cause, whereas climate tends to be a cumulative impact on the basis of all the historic emissions. Similarly, we see with COVID, it is massively correlated, spatially correlated, temporally correlated, all around the world, where I think we will see less of that on, on physical climate risk, which is highly spatially dependent and, and will happen in different places at different times, even though the overall kind of growing macro situation is the same. And then lastly, the, the human response. It's actually easier to respond when you see something that is so clear and di- directly attributable 
I think humans are, are less conditioned to respond to something that accumulates over time from something that uh, you, you can't see and the attribution is less clear. So there's some very important similarities and differences. And you have to be very careful here not to overplay your hand. But there are areas, as Jonathan said, what climate change or physical climate risk is really, it is a risk multiplier. And when the risk in the system is already high and you put climate change on top of it, you end up with a multiplication of that risk. And so whilst I would not put attribution to the current situation, I think looking forward, it is not a stretch to say that, you know, infectious diseases could become more, um, could spread more and become more prominent as temperature and humidity changes change, uh, uh, rise around the world. Um, and then in terms of displacement, either of animals coming in touch with animals that haven't happened, and we know that it is often, it's the, it's the uh, jumping from species to species that cause some of these uh, pandemics. And similarly, if, if humans get displaced, it both puts them at risk and puts other and creates fertile uh, ground for the dissemination of pandemics. But it's a risk multiplier, not to say that there's direct attribution here. Um, so if we if we just look at one or two of those in a in a bit more detail, um, this is looking more at the Mediterranean. And if you look at West Nile virus, which is doesn't have that much of a foothold in Europe today. And you look at what happens with the, the, the spread of the, this pink area. And these are the cases reported in 2014 on the left. And you wind that clock forward to 2025 or even 2050. And you see these are the areas that have greater than the 50% probability of the presence of West Nile. You see that beginning to encroach significantly into the Mediterranean, uh, into Eastern Europe, etc., in a way that hasn't been seen. And we're beginning to see these discussions coming up with our pharmaceutical uh, uh, clients, et cetera, wondering, you know, it, I've been investing in cancer drugs, but maybe, maybe I should be thinking about heat. Maybe I should think be thinking about disease vectors, et cetera. Uh, similarly, if you look at dengue fever and you just look at the, the change of, uh, prevalence, um, and this just shows what the, the change of areas at risk would be over the next 30 years. And again, you begin anything that has a, a red spot is an area where you have increased probability and anywhere where you have a blue spot is decreased probability. And you see the Gulf of Mexico uh, in the US, uh, parts of uh, Central and Southern uh, America and South Africa becoming, uh, having, you know, significant more hotspots. And that's a function of uh, as many disease vectors are temperature, precipitation, and humidity conditions changing. And this gets back to that other attribute we talked about, which is non-stationarity. And when things are changing, it means the boundaries or the thresholds of places where which events occur changes too, and it, it exposes potential vulnerability for areas that are not used to these types of things. You know, we can ask ourselves, well, what has been the impact of COVID, say, on emissions? Um, and we've obviously all noticed a massive impact on uh, our lives, the way we live our lives, um, the, the, our working lives. You see, you know, at least in Europe and the U.S., very few planes in the sky, very few cars on the road. So surely emissions would go to zero. Um, no, they've only come down, we think, by about five and a half percent in 2020. The actual reduction net is very, very small. Um, now, admittedly, they've been, you know, we want them to come down uh, by two, three percent a year if you wanted to get to. Um, that kind of 50% reduction by 2030. But the point being is this is 
one, the economic cost of this virus is, you know, absolutely horrific. And two, actually, the impact is not as great uh, as you might think. Um, so clearly, uh, which I think we can all, we're all pleased about, we are not advocating that uh, pandemics would be a, a cure to climate change, but the cost is horrific. But moreover, it doesn't actually even begin to solve the problem. So something else needs to happen. Um, so we asked ourselves a question, you know, what would accelerate the climate action? And we saw on the on the the answers, we had about a third, a third, a third. And what might decelerate? And I think there are reasons to be both optimistic and pessimistic. I think on the accelerate front, and, and Oliver alluded to this earlier, we are seeing obviously massive increase of government action. Um, and the, the role of, of government in playing, uh, solving some of the climate change challenges is obviously crucial. We're also seeing historic low interest rates, which could be good for infrastructure. And we're seeing risk coming up much more prevalently as a, as a measure of consideration. Um, however, on the downside, we are seeing uh, low fuel costs, although they're, they're, those may be more, more temporary. Uh, the national, you know, the government action is more national than multinational, which is is problematic because you do need cross-border agreement. So that is not a uh, necessarily a good sign. And obviously, you know, the, the economic situation is such that focus will be elsewhere in in some governments' minds. Um, obviously, to get out of the current situation, and it may, you know, the capital turnover cycle of replacing uh, old assets for new in a situation where wealth is lower could also be. Uh, decelerated. So that's a bit of the, the balance, but we've begun to look at this in a bit more detail. There should be a reframing, which is a lot of the actions that you can take around climate change to establish greater resilience or decarbonization could actually be accelerants out of the current situation. Uh, we just published a paper yesterday um, uh, which details some of this work. But if you look at the job creation potential, of say clean energy investments versus fossil fuel investments, you know the number of jobs per million dollars is you know two or three x for for some of the um, some of the renewable type investments. Similarly, in construction, um, you know the public transportation, if you index it per million dollars to compare to say new roads and bridges, is about thirty percent higher. And similarly, you can go and look at things like uh, a farming, which are a little bit more labor intensive, etc. So the Ability to put people back to work and to create GDP could, in some cases, be very attractive for a bunch of these measures. And it, we've, we've done a fairly uh, extensive analysis. These are some of the questions going through uh, uh, governments and, and companies' minds, which uh, if you look at the economic impact across the top and the decarbonization, what are the number of jobs? And this is we did this for Europe per, per million uh, euros invested. What are the gross value add multipliers? What skill level do I need? What is the speed of impact? Very important. And similarly, then you can look at decarbonization and say, you know, what are my impacts, both, you know, CO2 removed, speed, etc. And you see, and th this just lists uh, about 15 levers for transport from electrifying bus fleets to deploying EV charge points, uh, commissioning high speed connections, etc. And you can go through and you can begin to rack and stack this. And we're finding government by government and state by state, there's quite a serious analysis going on and looking at this. And I think when you rack and stack a bunch of these, even relative to uh, non-climate-related kind of opportunities, a number of these things will float to the top because they're serious infrastructure investments or serious O&M 
investments, which can put quite a lot of people back to work. And so there's a, you know, a framework where if you look on one hand and think through what is the socioeconomic impact, you know, the, the GDP multiplier, the ability to reduce inequality, the speed of impact on the one hand, and the climate impact on the other hand, whether that's tons removed or adaptation and resilience created or the speed of impact. And you begin to see, and it, obviously it will vary uh, by geography, but you can start seeing how certain levers jump to the top. So, you know, a lot of the O&M opportunities, op um, operations uh, and maintenance can put a lot of people back to work very quickly. Similarly, infrastructure has a lot of opportunity to uh, create create jobs and, and wealth, but that that's a little, you know, it takes a little bit longer than, than things like O&M. But you, we're beginning to do this type of analysis uh, for, for different regions of the world, and I think it's proving quite interesting. So I think it raises the question, you know, now that we've thought through what are some of the, the lessons um, that COVID poses for climate change, what are the risks that we talked about at the beginning, and then how does that pertain to the current situation? So I think before we go to questions, just thinking, what does it, what does it mean? What does it mean for companies in, in Asia? Um, so a couple of thoughts. One, um, from an investor point of view, I think there's going to be a lot of need for um, new capital formation. So in many cases, governments can provide the demand signal as you know, the European green stimulus just came out yesterday. I think lots of states, for example, where I live, California, New York, et cetera, are looking at this. But they don't necessarily have the money. Uh, and they will be looking to the private sector to form that money and think about deploying it in interesting mechanisms. So how do you securitize new infrastructure? How do you create public-private partnerships? How do you do blended financing um, to go after things like EV charging points or you know, solar deployment or retrofitting of buildings, et cetera? Um, and I think you know, what's required to do that, uh, both in the private sector, is to help uh, governments shape those plans and think through you know, what those mechanisms are to deploy, to deploy that money. Um, and, you know, this could be a major, major theme for the next 12, 18, 24 months, um, where, the, where the government is a, is a much more significant actor than it was. And then I think it tees up, you know, from a, a delivery point of view, we'll also have to think through new delivery models. So, for example, even though retrofitting of buildings looks very interesting, I think the whole social distancing uh, tea, you know, raises challenges. So should there be more modular construction te techniques, how much stuff can be done? off-site before it is deployed, et cetera. So that's just going into a little bit of detail to sort of wind, you know, summarize by saying, yes, I think there's a lot to learn. I think this is a, a wake-up call in terms of risk and vulnerability. And actually, if we learn the lessons and take that risk mindset and think through what is required, as Maple showed from an adaptation, resilience, and a decarbonization point of view to deal with physical climate risk, there are actually a lot of things that can be done here that would both accelerate out of the current situation and create that longer-term economic and environmental resilience. So with, with that, Yuita, I'll hand it back to you. Thank you very much, um, Dickin, for your presentation. Um, I would like to go for the final poll asking the audiences, once again, when will physical climate risk response be critical for your organization, um, as we asked uh, in the beginning as well? But, um, Dickon, finally, while we wait, uh, I, there was also a question that was coming up as well. What, what are the specific capabilities that was uh, what Michaela was mentioning as well that are required for companies to get prepared um, on this physical climate risk? 
So I, I think a, a, a few things. One, I wouldn't be surprised if every major company within the next three to five years had a climate scientist on the board. So the need for climate, decent climate science that is, you know, the, the ability to look forward on the basis of how things are changing versus being purely reliant on the past empirical evidence is going to be very important. Secondly, I think strengthening this risk muscle is, is, is huge. And I think that the, the, the companies that we see who are most advanced on thinking through physical risk are now, and transition risk, are beginning to think through, how do I embed it into the governance and every decision I make? What organization do I need? And the answer is probably not to have a standalone sustainability function. It's a little bit like cyber risk was 10 years ago, where now every cyber decision, or every cyber threat is, is sort of integrated into all the decisions you make. Climate risk will have to be integrated into capital allocation, into budgeting, into supply chain management, etc. So I think there's a huge governance and organization piece, uh, including all the way up to the board and how you structure for this, um, and, and a host of new kind of climate analytics capabilities that will be uh, required. Thank you uh, very much, Nikin. And we see actually the numbers um, going up slightly up as well um, in terms of right now already. So I feel that um, the audience is are uh, feeling this as well. But um, now we'd like to open up, and there are some questions coming in already, um, open up discussion from the participants as well. Again, to ask a question, please go to the Q&A tab, uh, lower right side of your screen, type your question, and then click send. Um, there's a few um, coming around, and let me, let me start off with um, one here. Jonathan, um, there's a question on Asia. Um, what are you seeing specifically in the companies in Asia Pacific, um, banks, infrastructure companies, you know, when you're talking about the climate risk um, analysis? Well, I, I think we're, uh, first of all, a thing of uh, company uh, in a business portfolio, it's important to get a handle on that risk. And that, that from, and that's, that's a sort of, as Dickon was saying, an across the board issue. So part of it is about getting the data. In place. And some companies are already there. In fact, if you look at companies that op operate in extreme environments of uh, where they already have exposure to natural hazards, they're very familiar. And so there's actually quite a bit of expertise in some areas, but in others, um, potentially also in areas that are essential and critical, like utilities, um, there needs to be more investment made. Uh, on the finance side, what we see is a, uh, is a similar sort of awareness that now this has been factored into equity uh, values and market values, and it will be important to uh, build that capability as a, as a function of risk, but also an opportunity in a sense that what we're looking at here is sort of ensuring that there's a full set of information for investors uh, given they can in turn improve the quality of their decisions. And from a financial institution's perspective, that does translate uh, into a benefit. So, uh, for them competitively. And so the question we get from banks and, 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 and investors in Asia is who can do this for me? So who can provide this uh, set of information that allows me to construct a climate optimized portfolio? And that's finally the third reaction we get is from companies that do see this as simply saying, well, we, this is in some aspects of physical climate risk are locked in. Uh, and uh, we see that momentum. So we do need to address it. And that creates a set of investment challenges and opportunities. And so you have, you have plenty of folks who are taking this as a mandate 
to invest in technologies for adaptation uh, and for mitigation. And I think that's a, and so it actually is again and spurring investments, not uh, not not freezing them in place. Very good. No, thank you. There's a number of questions coming in. Thank you very much. Um, Dick and maybe and Michaela, um, two questions I'll ask you at the same time. One, what are some of the key questions boards need to be asking to the top management on whether the company is becoming ready for the climate risk? How do boards um, become more comfortable um, on these um, analysis? Is there any questions that we'd like to uh, pause? And then uh, number two, there's also a question, um, Jonathan or Dick and Michaela, um, around, um, you know, insurance, um, because all these natural kind of uh, risks are, you know, getting higher, um, how could an insurer kind of plan? What, what are the implications for the insurance sector? Please, um, two questions at the same time. Okay, maybe maybe I'll, I'll start with insurance and, and then maybe make you want to pile in on boards. And, and insurance is a very interesting one. It was an area we're spending a lot of time in. Um, there is a lot of confusion, I think, about who holds the risk here. Uh, I mean, in, insurance really, uh, it, it transfers the risk. And in best cases, it helps mitigate the risk by changing behavior. Um, but it rarely holds that much risk because it, it, it typically policies are one year policies. And so I, you know, when you have a, a, a mortgage, uh, it is actually subject to your, your 30 year mortgage is subject to you having insurance. So if you don't get insurance the year after, you actually may be in default. Um, so insurance is tricky. And um, uh, some of the actors that we think are going to be most interesting in the insurance space are the insurance brokers who don't actually hold the risk, but can actually put the pieces together. And I think there are some regulatory challenges in the insurance market. Um, uh, in, in some areas where there have been disasters, you see that there's been a moratorium on dropping insurance or changing insurance to reflect forward-looking risk, which I think means that, you know, in some places, insurers, when that moratorium ends, will just leave. So I, I think this is really worth looking at because at the end of the day, that there are kind of middlemen and the two people really left holding the risk are the consumer and potentially the sovereign. Uh, and to some extent, I think it is also worth looking at sovereign risk and, and trying to educate the risk that's coming their way so that they can sensibly and thoughtfully think through what risk to put back onto the private sector to, to, to drive the right set of behaviors. But it's a, it's a complex problem. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, maybe just to add on the insurer side, I think, um, you know, insurers also have a really crucial role to play in terms of building some of the analytical capabilities to quantify this risk. In some ways, uh, if you think about natural catastrophe modeling, that's what insurers do. That's their day job. But now it's about how you integrate a forward-looking view of climate into many of these models. And we're seeing a lot of insurers really investing um, in, in trying to build such capabilities. And then I think the other um, angle we're seeing around insurance is the role of insurers in advising on risk management, right? So what, what are the types of advisory services they can put in place to help um, insurees, whether, whether that's companies or homeowners, think about practices to adapt to risk, whether that's elevating homes or building other forms of um, physical hardening, et cetera. Uh, just so one more on the, on the, what, one other thing on the insurance side just made me think is the, the investment side. So there's the underwriting side, but then there's actually quite a lot of exposure on the investment side. And then there's a reputation and a regular truth piece but I, you know, I think one of the things that could be considered are things like parametric pricing, which is, uh, you know, where you're pricing for a sort of set of outcomes 
uh, overall, whether or not something. So, you know, you, you pay out if it rains 26 inches, but not 25, even if the property didn't flood. And that's beginning to be a manifestation of climate risk. But I think that some of those fundamental product redesign may be, may be required. So, sorry, Michael. You know, uh, that's great, Dickens. Um, on the board side, and um, Jonathan, they can please add on as well. I think a little bit this goes back to uh, what Dickon was saying and I was saying related to companies embedding climate risk into their operations, right? So um, rather than it being a separate function that is owned by a sustainability head, really putting in place practices that integrate it into every aspect of a company's business. And certainly there needs to be analytics and tools that underpin that but it needs to be a part of purchasing and supply chain decisions. It needs to be a part of capital allocation, capital planning decisions. It needs to be a part of uh, financial modeling. So it's we're really talking about an end-to-end integration of these risk capabilities. And so the board as providing oversight to that, I think is, is um, an enormous role and responsibility. Um, I think the other piece we're seeing a lot of momentum on on the part of companies is around disclosures. So one of the big things that happened um, in the last few years was uh, momentum around the task force on financial disclosures, TCFD, which many companies have now started to adopt. Um, and so as a, as a tool to create transparency on a company's practices and for companies themselves to communicate to their shareholders, their consumers on the practices they're taking, that's becoming, that's gaining a lot of momentum. Um, and boards playing a role in ensuring those disclosures um, meet their, their standards, meet their needs, um, I think will be important. We have a final question um, and maybe 30 seconds each from Jonathan and Dickin. Do you see an upside for Asian um, countries or companies from this um, you know, climate-related outcomes, especially in the COVID, you know, in the solar ages, you saw some of the Asian companies rising for market opportunities. Do you see any opportunities in this green stimulus for Asian countries, Jonathan Dick, and maybe 30 seconds each. Yeah, well, as I was saying, the opportunity is, is essentially about, well, the science tells us what's going to happen. It's a bit up to us what we want to do about it. And uh, companies and decision makers that respond more effectively will have an upside. Uh, and so cities that are better cities because they're flood-proofed and that they have uh, They've, they've managed their uh, exposure to heat and agricultural productivity is, is, is sustained. We'll obviously do a lot better. Uh, and uh, so being foresight and, and proactive, uh, proactive in, uh, having foresight and being proactive will be, will be critical. And that extends, of course, to industry as well. As far as the specifics on the stimulus and, and how that plays out, I think, of course, in any economic investment, there are going to be winners and losers. Uh, and uh, you know what? What we'll have to look for is the competitiveness of any company, or, or for that matter, uh, the government uh, in support in making these investments will ultimately determine whether that is a positive value creating investment or not. Yeah, maybe the one, one thing I'd add. I think capital formation is huge. So I think that 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 the, the, take Europe right now, that there's a big stimulus. There will be a signal, but there is not necessarily the money behind it. So capital formation. Um, and then I think the need for, um, as I, as I say, I think there's sort of in, the, the need for infrastructure for the next 10 years that could be securitized. Uh, I think there's a lot of opportunity there, uh, both for decarbonization, but also for long-term resilience and adaptation, uh, is I, I think a big opportunity for, um, uh, Asian manufacturers and services companies. <laughs> 
Very good. Um, thank you. We're hitting, hitting the time. Thank you again, um, Dickin, Michaela, and Jonathan. On behalf of the McKinsey Sustainability Practice and McKinsey Global Institute, I'd like to say a huge thank you to all the participants joining today. You have been listening to the Future of Asia podcast by McKinsey & Company. To learn more about McKinsey, our people, our latest thinking, visit us at mckinsey.com slash futureofasia or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. <laughs>